This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. This is the Science Podcast for December 3rd, 2021. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we share the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. There's been an avalanche of data, trials, preprints, published papers, all on COVID-19. How much of it is useful, though? I talked with contributing correspondent Kathleen O'Grady about the problem of small, badly designed studies, both for coronavirus research and more generally. I also talked with researcher Marc-Antoine Longpre about the ongoing eruption of the Cumbra Vieja volcano on Spain's Canary Islands. He tells me what we've learned about this volcano when it wakes up after 50 years of slumber. Now we have contributing correspondent Kathleen O'Grady. She wrote this week about the worth of small, poorly designed trials, especially for COVID-19 research. Hi, Kathleen. Hi, Sarah. There's been so much research during the pandemic, just a rain of preprints, papers, data, and how much of it is really any good. Now, Kathleen, I don't expect you to answer that, but we do know that it is not all gold, right? We do know that it's not all gold. There have been a number of studies coming out over the last year that have analyzed the quality of COVID-19 research, and most of them have found in different ways that the majority of this research has significant and really problematic weaknesses in one way or another. This is a long-standing problem. Poorly designed science getting out into the public. What made you decide to write about it now? There's this recent paper making the argument that sometimes nothing is better than something. And that struck me as a very interesting argument. I think some people will consider it very obvious that it's better to do nothing than a poor quality something. But I think many researchers have for a long time had the opposite stance as their default, that a tiny bit of evidence is better than nothing at all. And I think it was a very interesting argument to make to challenge that status quo and say that sometimes we need to acknowledge when it's not possible to do something and some of the harms that can come from doing a small, weak something, those harms being misinformation, false impression of precision, waste of resources, and struck me as something that's particularly important now, given the weight that's being placed on a lot of these small somethings. Mm -hmm. Plenty of studies don't recruit enough people, don't do enough follow-up or follow long enough, or aren't controlled for potential confounding factors. It all sounds terrible to me, but some of the people you talk to for your story say that there is worth here, that 
you know, having something very small isn't always the worst thing in the world. Yeah, very much so. I mean, first of all, some of the research that's come out in COVID-19 has been absolutely incredible gold standard. So a lot of people that I spoke to for the story really emphasized that things like the recovery trial and the vaccine trials stand out as being really superb trials. But at the same time, there are a lot of very small trials that don't recruit enough people to really have certainty in their conclusions. And some people say that there is a role for this kind of small trial because for a start, it can help researchers to kind of iron out all of their methods and make sure that their next step when they go to a bigger trial, they're doing things high quality right from the start. So they can serve a good function as pilot studies. And some people also say that a whole bunch of small trials together cumulatively can add up to decent quality evidence, either if you look at them and they're all kind of pointing in the same direction, or if you actually combine their results into a meta-analysis. Well, Kathleen, I feel like we've talked about this before. Can you take a bunch of small trials with big error bars and add them together and get small error bars? <laughs> so meta-analyses are a matter of quite a lot of debate. And one of the really important things with them is that if the studies feeding into a meta-analysis are all poor quality, then ultimately throwing all of those results together doesn't iron out the quality problems in the original data sets. So you could end up with a meta-analysis that looks like it's fairly precise or it's pointing in a particular direction. But if the studies are poor quality in other ways, rather than just their low sample size, then you still don't have anything particularly meaningful at the end. Is this particular to COVID science or more broad? It's a problem that people have been identifying in science for a very long time across a number of different fields. But given the concerns about even lower quality in COVID-19 research, there might be an argument that it's particularly bad for COVID-19 studies. And also given the importance of COVID-19 research for informing urgent public policy decisions, it really is very concerning. If it's coronavirus research, it's going to get picked up by the press. It's going to go out on Twitter and people are going to react to it, even if it's not powerful enough or not certain enough to really answer the question they were trying to investigate. Yeah, very much so. The study that sparked a massive debate about the size and quality of COVID-19 trials was a study done on masking in Denmark, where researchers mailed masks to a number of participants and asked them to wear them on top of the public health measures that were going on in Denmark at the time, and then compared their infection rates to a control group who weren't asked to wear masks. And this study was ultimately too small to draw any solid conclusions. Out of 19 million research articles catalogued by analytics company Altmetric, this study is the seventh most shared of all time. Wow. And it's not really powered enough to answer that question. And what does it say about masks? What are the conclusions from that paper? So the conclusion of the paper was that there was no statistically significant difference, which is not the same thing as the paper concluding that there is no difference between masking and unmasking. What that's saying is that it can't be certain either way, whether masks increase the risk of infection or decrease the risk of infection. I thought we didn't like null results. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, in, in a way, it's good that this paper got published with a null result. But unfortunately, it takes some understanding of very arcane statistics to understand what a null result means and how to interpret it. Yeah. And that's something that experts are going to have to deal with. You know, oh, this result isn't what you think it is. They're going to have to spend time doing an information campaign to correct these kinds of errors of perception of the results of the study. Exactly. And there were misinterpretations in good faith and then also misinterpretations in bad faith. And there was a study in JAMA Internal Medicine that found that this article had fed into social media misinformation campaigns. 
there is a larger link to misinformation here besides just this one masking study. Being able to look across a bunch of not the greatest research, you can pick what you want to talk about if you're interested in misleading the public. Yeah, there is a real problem with cherry picking. One of the interesting arguments that a number of researchers have been making, this is the argument that I covered in my story this week, is that a study like this trial on masking in Denmark can give the false illusion of precision because this study came up with a result and it had error bars around that result. So it reflected how much uncertainty there was about its result. And that can make people think that we still have some idea of what the effect of asking people to wear masks might be. But in fact, just this one study is only hitting on one small population and getting one estimate of that effect. And ultimately, the reality might be much broader than that. It might be much more complicated. We're talking about small trials, pilots, okay. Maybe they set you up for something bigger later, but a lot of these are not done with the intention of being followed up. Should we just not do these kinds of studies? So that is what some researchers are arguing, that although there is an assumption among a lot of scientists that some data is better than nothing, these researchers argue that sometimes some data can be more harmful than nothing because it gives a false impression of precision and because it can lead to misinformation. Some researchers also say that it's only worthwhile doing a small study if you have the intention of following it up with a properly sized trial. So doing a small study and expecting somebody else to pick up the baton is not really in line with the ethical justification for using human subjects. Right. I mean, how ethical is it to put people through whatever your study protocol is if the results are not going to be meaningful enough for people to take action on? Yeah, that's a real concern. Well, let's talk a little bit about the players in this, the people who are carrying out this debate. It started with the Dan Mask people, but then others waited and said, hey, that's actually not a good thing. The Dan Mask study was published late last year and obviously got this crazy amount of attention. And then a researcher in Norway published a commentary saying that although the Dan Mask study was too small to give any precision, it was still worth doing something rather than nothing, that a small amount of evidence is better than no evidence at all. Recently, another group of researchers led by Noah Haber argued quite the opposite, that in fact, in some cases, nothing is better than something if that something is going to be very weak. Right. So what are people supposed to do if they get a little bit of funding, but not enough funding, you know, (laughs) include as many people as are necessary for a big study? Like, how are people supposed to take the baby steps necessary to get that big funding bundle that they need to do a big giant study? Yeah, that's a really, really difficult question. And I guess the answer to that is that this is something that funding institutions should take into account, that funding a small study may ultimately be a waste of resources. Large international collaborations running multi-site studies can be one way around this, where a lot of researchers are pooling their resources and their time to do a study with this large and very heterogeneous sample size. Yeah, but at the same time, those are very, not just costly, but they take a lot of time to set up They are difficult and logistically tricky to run. Haber and his group's argument is that if we're not going to do something properly, then ultimately it's a massive waste of resources to do it at all. Mm -hmm. We've been talking about the Dan Mass trial, which people complained was underpowered and the results were inconclusive. But another group did a very large study in Bangladesh and did get results. How is the Bangladesh study different? So the Bangladesh study was different in a number of different ways. Mainly it was absolutely ginormous. Right. We're talking 300,000 plus in Bangladesh versus 3,000 for Dan Mask. 
So although its results showed only a small effect for masking, a bigger effect for surgical masks than for cloth masks, it does allow more precision and more confidence in those results than the Dan mask study. Some people think the result is disappointing and there are certainly critiques of both the trial itself and the way that the researchers analyzed the results. But the size and the design of the trial are larger and much more solid than the Dan mask study, which means that we can have much more confidence in those results. Okay, so besides doing a good job at science, what are the incentives for making these larger trials, these collaborations, these well-designed studies? So this is something that a number of researchers have pointed out to me as being quite problematic, which is that individual researchers are incentivized to publish as many papers as possible. And this means that they have an incentive to cut their work into the highest number of publishable units that they possibly can, which means that you're rewarded more for publishing a lot of small trials than you are for publishing one very high quality trial, which means that the incentive structure of how researchers are assessed and the quality of their work really is driving some of the problem here. Thanks, Kathleen. Thanks, Sarah. Kathleen O'Grady is a contributing correspondent for Science. You can find the news article we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for my chat with volcanologist Mark Antoine Longpre about his visit to the erupting volcano Cumbre Vieja. In September this year, the volcano Cumbre Vieja began to erupt. It's actually still happening. Cumbre Vieja is in Spain's Canary Islands on La Palma. The last time it erupted was back in 1971. So we don't know much about this past eruption or the signs that it was coming. Mark Antoine Longpre is a volcanologist and associate professor at Queens College, City University of New York. He wrote a commentary piece about the ongoing eruption of Cumbre Vieja and what today's sensors tell us about what happens when this volcano wakes up. Hi, Mark Antoine. Hi. Can you rank an eruption? Is there some kind of rating scale where this fits? The most commonly used scale for uh, classifying the size of volcanic eruption is the volcanic explosivity index, which ranges from VEI of zero to eight, eight being uh, very, very large eruptions like those uh, produced by Yellowstone caldera once every million year or so. This one is the modest eruption. I would rank on that scale as a VI2. So does that mean that there are explosions as well as, I've seen pictures of lava flowing? Yes. One of the main surprises that came about with this eruption was that the eruption was quite explosive. Relatively speaking, it is not a very explosive eruption as, for example, Mount St. Helens or Vesuvius can produce or at the extreme case, like a Yellowstone type eruption. It is not that kind of eruption, obviously, but it is more, a little bit more explosive than we could figure out from looking at the historical records of previous eruption from the Canary Islands. So that came as a little bit of a surprise that the eruption plume uh, has been rising constantly to about three to six kilometers above sea level, producing substantial ash all around the island. And that led to closure of the local airport for multiple days and had as covered the roofs of houses that have not been affected yet by lava flows. And that has been a big issue. I've seen some pretty striking photos of the ash buildup 
around the volcano and the eruption. It looks knee deep or even higher. Yes, in places close enough to the vent. Now the ash and lepili, these are slightly bigger fragments of magma that has fragmented. It has accumulated to, um, yeah, uh, 60 centimeters, about a, a one kilometer distance from the volcano. And closer, the thicknesses are greater. You actually got to visit this volcano during the eruption. I was very surprised when I got on the ferry to, to get to, the, to La Palma. We were on the ferry from the island of Tenerife. And we started receiving ash in our hair, in our face, even though we were more than 100 kilometers away. So that was... Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, that was very uh, surprising to me. So was it difficult to breathe when you were on the island, when you were getting closer to the volcano? No, uh, it was not. The ash concentrations were relatively low in the air. And also, the, I think the particle size... They were fairly coarse, the ash particles, which is not as bad as a finer ash for breathing. What was the purpose of your visit there? Were you going to collect data? Yes. Yeah, so I'm, um, my expertise is mostly in the chemical composition of volcanic rocks. The main goal of our stay there in the field was to collect samples of the eruption as it was happening. Because when you're in the field, when it happens, you can actually know exactly when your sample was erupted that has added value for our research. Mm -hmm. Let's get back to the thrust of your commentary article here. One of the things that you're talking about was the amount of warning that we can have. How much run-up time, how much warning did the volcano give before this eruption? The volcanic unrest or the warning time for this eruption was in two different stages. In hindsight, we can look at the data and realize that it was, it became in a state of unrest about four years ago. In October 2017, there seems to be the first signs that something was going on, that magma beneath the volcano was mobilizing itself. But it was really difficult because we lacked prior data on this particular volcano, right? This is the first eruption of this volcano that has been studied with modern instrumentation. Therefore, we did not know what its behavior would be like before an eruption. So swarms of small seismic disruptions several years ago, you don't know how soon after that something more serious is going to happen. But the week prior to the eruption, there were much more strong signs. The small earthquake swarms, that we call them, had been continuing on and off in 2018 and 2020, also a little bit at the beginning of 2021. But then around September 11th, 2021, that's when the activity changed quite dramatically with the number of earthquakes increasing very rapidly. But also, as opposed to prior earthquakes, these little swarms there were accompanied by ground deformation. So at the same time as they were earthquakes, they were also the ground swelling, which is a clear sign that magma is quite shallow and on the move. How many earthquakes a day would you say there were during this high activity period right before the eruption? Hundreds. So one to three hundreds at the maximum. And then it went down a little bit a couple of days before the eruption and then picked up again to about 150 earthquakes a day. Mm. So with that level of activity, was that taken seriously and people were able to get away? Yes. The local authorities correctly indicated that this was likely related to a shallow magma intrusion. 
and they were ready to evacuate residents. However, the, the difficulty at a volcano like Cumbria Vieja is that there is no certainty about where the eruption will take place. It doesn't have a cone at the top? It's not a classical no. uh, volcano with a crater at the top where you can most of the time be fairly safe that the eruption will take place there. This is more of a ridge-shaped volcano that every time it erupts, it forms a new little cone on its flank somewhere, but we don't know where exactly. Mm-hmm. It's about a 45-kilometer-long ridge where eruptions could happen. But yeah, as I said, it was not clear exactly where it was going to happen. There's been some damage to towns nearby. Yeah, huge amount of damage. Where the magma broke the surface was fairly close to um, densely settled areas and multiple villages downslope. So pretty quickly, the lava gained ground and destroyed. We're at this point close to 2,800 houses destroyed. Wow. That's a lot of buildings. A lot of buildings. Is there any indication for how long this eruption will continue? It's been since middle of September. We're now middle of November. Yeah, so it's been almost two months. From the historical records of previous eruption, we know that they typically last between three weeks and three months. So that's a rough indication of what we might expect. It could last longer, but it would be longer than usual. And there seems to be some signs recently that the activity may be decreasing, uh, although that could change back. Now that we have some data on what it looks like when this volcano goes from sleeping to awake, is it similar to the pattern that other volcanoes follow when they're about to erupt? It is a bit different from more commonly known basaltic volcanoes. So when I say basaltic, these are the volcanoes that erupt low silica lavas that have a very low viscosity, meaning that they are fluid. So compared to these other volcanoes, such as Kilauea in Hawaii and Mount Etna in Sicily or Piton de la Fornes volcano in Reunion Island, it seems like Cumbria Vieja and other Canary Island volcanoes seem to have a longer run-up time to their eruptions. Longer, like four years, is that what you mean? Or the eight days? The four years would be the, in hindsight, that would be the run-up time of, of the eruption because that's they were the first signs that magma was on the move. Are they also quiet for longer? Yes. These volcanoes in the Canary Islands are fairly quiet. They erupt every few decades. In some cases, they erupt every other few centuries or even millennia. So they are not hyperactive. Is this connected to some of the unique circumstances of these volcanoes? They are what we call intraplate volcanoes located far away from plate boundaries, tectonic plate boundaries, where usually most of the volcanism occurs. So these are anomalous locations, usually on the ocean floor, where magma has been rising. And the origin of this volcanism has been debated and is still debated, but it's thought to be related to a thermal or compositional anomaly in the Earth's mantle that rises from deep within the Earth and produce melting to create the volcanoes. What we know now about this volcano, does it change how we should monitor it? Or, you know, does it change how we should monitor volcanoes more generally? I'm not sure if it changes how we should monitor the volcano, but 
it certainly helps to know what to expect next time. Now that we know that it's possible for the earlier signs of the eruption to be years before, and that it may accelerate very rapidly before an eruption can start, that's very crucial information for decision-making in the case of future unrest at this volcano, but also other similar volcanoes. Mm -hmm. Is that why you wrote this piece? I guess that's one of the main points of the piece is that this is important data, clearly, for Canary Island volcanoes to try to understand them better and to compare and contrast them with more active volcanoes that we hear more about in the scientific literature and even in the media. Thanks, Mark Antoine. Thank you very much for having me. Mark Antoine Longpre is a volcanologist and associate professor at Queens College, City University of New York. And he's currently a guest investigator at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. You can find a link to the article we discussed at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website at science.org slash podcast. You can subscribe there or anywhere you get your podcasts. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.